Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, December 8th. In today's news, President Trump asked the Pennsylvania House Speaker for help overturning the election results. President-elect Biden nominates a retired four-star general to be defense secretary. And Congress will pass a one-week funding bill to avert a shutdown as stimulus negotiations continue. But first, the big idea. Margaret Keenan, 90, became the first person to receive the Pfizer vaccine shot outside of a clinical trial this morning. The grandmother of four received the shot at University Hospital in Coventry, England. British officials say they hope to vaccinate the majority of especially vulnerable people by the end of February. Priority will go to people over 80 and to nursing home caregivers. Margaret said her advice to anyone offered the vaccine is to take it. If I can have it at 90, she told reporters, then you can have it too. While Britain kicks off with gusto, the first mass immunization campaign in the West, we're learning about yet another way that President Trump and his team have dropped the ball on this side of the pond. Pfizer has told the Trump administration that it cannot provide substantial additional doses of its coronavirus vaccine until late June or July because other countries have bought up most of the supply. That means the U.S. government may not be able to ramp up nearly as rapidly as it had expected or promised from the 100 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine that it had already purchased earlier this year. This raises questions about whether the government can keep to its aggressive schedule to vaccinate most Americans by late spring or early summer. Several inside sources tell my colleagues Lori McGinley, Yasmin Abu-Talib, and Carolyn Johnson that this past summer, senior Pfizer executives urged Operation Warp Speed to purchase 200 million doses, or enough of the two-shot regimen for 100 million people to get inoculated. But Trump refused, opting instead for only 100 million doses. It was only last weekend, when FDA clearance is expected any day, that federal officials reached back out to Pfizer asking to buy another 100 million doses. But by then, Pfizer says it had committed the supply elsewhere to paying customers. Pfizer was the only company that did not take government money for research and development, which meant U.S. officials have had less insight in its decision-making and research processes than with other companies. Pfizer spokeswoman Amy Rose says that beyond the first 100 million doses the U.S. already secured, a separate agreement would need to be negotiated for more. Now, later today, Trump is expected to sign an executive order that would prioritize vaccinating Americans before providing doses to other countries. This is according to a senior administration official. What we don't know, what remains unclear, is whether the order is related to the Pfizer supply issue or whether the president, if he wants to, can even prevent an American company from fulfilling lawful contracts with other countries. The order will be announced today as part of a White House vaccine summit designed to highlight the administration's accomplishments Both Pfizer and Moderna have declined invitations to show up at the summit. No agreements with Moderna beyond its initial contract have been announced, but the U.S. has the option to purchase 400 million additional doses. Monsef Slui, the chief science advisor to Warp Speed, 
tapped by Trump, told my colleagues yesterday that the U.S. government strategy was to spread its risk widely over many different types of vaccines from different manufacturers. He declined to comment on any negotiations with particular companies, but he said he doesn't believe there will be the kind of vaccine cliff where the available doses would fall off sharply that some experts now fear. He said that Johnson & Johnson is likely to report trial results in early January for its vaccine and could be ready to ship doses in February if the vaccine gets authorized. He also predicted that AstraZeneca's trial will report results in late January or early February and potentially begin providing doses later that month. As we learn that our leaders have dropped the ball and let us down once again, the United States reported 185,552 new cases and another 1,324 deaths on Monday. But even now, a lot of politicians still don't have their eyes on the ball. Get this. Florida police officers with their guns drawn raided the home of an ousted health department data scientist early yesterday morning, searching for the former agency employee's most powerful tools, her computer, her iPhone, and other hardware that supports a coronavirus website that she set up after accusing the state of Florida of manipulating its official numbers to make them look better than they are. Law enforcement officials allege that the scientist, Rebecca Jones, may have also used the devices to hack into a health department website in November and to send an unauthorized message to Florida emergency personnel, urging them to speak up about the state's botched pandemic response that they're seeing on the inside. Now, she strongly denies the accusation that there was any hacking. And this is the latest clash between Jones and state officials who have traded accusations since she was fired from the Florida Department of Health over the summer. She has become an outspoken critic of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. She alleges that her ex-managers, political appointees, directed her to juke and tweak and otherwise manipulate virus case data to downplay the risk of infection, death, and hospitalization in Florida. Jones says she will not be cowed by what she characterizes as a state-sanctioned intimidation campaign. She tweeted, quote, if DeSantis thought pointing a gun in my face was a good way to get me to shut up, he's about to learn how wrong he was. I'll have a new computer tomorrow, and then I'm going to get back to work. Back here in Washington, we're learning about more possible retaliation. James Phillips, the Walter Reed emergency room physician who publicly criticized Trump's decision to drive with Secret Service agents to greet supporters while he was hospitalized with COVID, has been removed from the hospital's schedule starting in January. Phillips is the chief of disaster medicine at George Washington University and works as an attending physician on a contract basis for Walter Reed. On October 4th, when Trump was at the hospital, he called out the president for his, quote, completely unnecessary drive-by, warning that the agents could get sick or die for purely political theater. Down south, former Alabama State Senator Larry Dixon a Republican who previously directed the state's board of medical examiners, has just passed away from COVID. His last words were a warning, not just to the people of Alabama, but to everyone in America. According to his wife and a family friend who was present, Dixon's dying words on his deathbed were, quote, We messed up. We let our guard down. Please tell everybody to be careful. This is real. And if you get diagnosed, get help 
immediately. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, Trump called up the Speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives twice over the past week to make an extraordinary request for help reversing his loss in the state. The calls, which were confirmed by House Speaker Brian Cutler's office, make Pennsylvania the third state where Trump has directly attempted to overturn a result since he lost the election to Joe Biden. He previously reached out to Republicans in Michigan, and on Saturday, he called Georgia's GOP Governor Brian Kemp to pressure him to try to replace the state's electors with those who would vote for him. The president's outreach to Pennsylvania's Republican House leader came after his campaign and their allies have decisively lost literally dozens of legal challenges in the state, in both state and federal court. Amy Gardner, Josh Dossie, and Rachel Bade report that Cutler told the president that the legislature has no power to overturn the state's chosen slate of electors. The hot new thing among Trump's dead-enders is to try to dispute and object to the electors on January 6th when Congress is set to formally accept the results. Although such a move is highly unlikely to gain traction, at least one Pennsylvania congressman, Republican Scott Perry, said yesterday that he will heed the request of the Trump team and dispute the state's electors. To succeed, such a challenge would require support from a congressman and a senator and must survive a vote in both chambers. So far, no Republican senator has voiced support for such a maneuver which in any event would fail in the Democratic-controlled House. Perry joins Mo Brooks, the Republican congressman from Alabama, who last week announced plans to challenge the Electoral College vote. And Jim Jordan, the Ohio Republican, an outspoken ally of the president, said yesterday that he is, quote, totally for that. Meanwhile, House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, the South Carolina Democrat, said last night on CNN that these actions by House Republicans may, quote, incite people to do and say things they may not ordinarily do, adding, Quote, really, they're trying to invite insurrection. Number two, Joe Biden on Friday will announce that he is going to nominate retired General Lloyd Austin to be Secretary of Defense. If confirmed, Austin would be the first black Pentagon chief. The 67-year-old rose to become a four-star general in the Army and retired in 2016 as the chief of U.S. Central Command, a role from which he oversaw U.S. military operations across the Middle East for three years. His tenure there included the rise of the Islamic State, which began seizing cities in Iraq in 2014. And then he also oversaw the U.S.-led military intervention to stop it. The early days of the campaign against ISIS were marked by airstrikes and the United States building a coalition to roll back the militant group's gains. It also included lots of embarrassments, including that disastrous $500 million effort to train Syrian rebels. Austin's selection will prompt a heated congressional debate over whether enough lawmakers will support a waiver from a law that mandates any service member must be out of uniform for at least seven years before becoming eligible to serve as defense secretary. The law is meant to ensure civilian control of the military, something the founding fathers intended. As Clemenceau said, War is too important to be left to the generals. The Trump administration obtained a similar waiver for former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, a retired Marine general. But many Democrats loudly decried that four years ago, so they'd have to flip-flop and take back a lot of things that they said. Annie Linsky reports that Biden has had a personal relationship with Austin. 
He even attended the general's 2010 change of command ceremony when Austin took over in Iraq. Biden, whose portfolio as vice president included Iraq, worked with him closely during the Obama administration and feels like they have a good rapport, something that has been important in other selections as well. Number three, Congress is going to vote this week on a one-week stopgap measure to fund the federal government in order to give negotiators more time to reach agreement on government appropriations and emergency stimulus legislation for the ailing American economy. Mike DeBonis, Jeff Stein, and Sungmin Kim report that negotiations over government funding bills have stalled with lawmakers torn on at least a dozen policy issues, particularly related to immigration. The federal government is set to shut down after December 11th, Friday, if Congress fails to act. Congressional leaders were hoping to attach coronavirus relief legislation to the must-pass government spending bill, but work on that effort is also far from complete. The most divisive issues in the government spending talks concern border wall funding and detention facilities run by ICE. Democratic appropriators have said they're awaiting responses on a range of questions from their Republican counterparts. Meanwhile, the bipartisan group of moderate senators pursuing a stimulus package made progress over the weekend in marathon negotiating sessions that were held over Zoom. Their proposed compromise, which continues to gain momentum, centers on providing hundreds of billions of dollars in three key areas, aid for the jobless, state and local funding, and a second round of small business relief. The group is expected to propose funding federal supplemental unemployment benefits at $300 per week for tens of millions of unemployed Americans. The new benefit would cover payments for the jobless for 16 weeks. A lot of people are desperate for that help. Millions of our fellow Americans are heading into the holidays unemployed. Nearly 12 million renters in America owe an average of $5,850 in back rent and utilities, according to a fresh report from Moody's Analytics. Economists say this new Moody's data underscores the deepening financial distress for many families as the pandemic continues to shut off work opportunities, lending new urgency to those negotiations on the Hill. The numbers of those behind on rent and utilities are especially high for families with children. 21% of households with kids have fallen behind on rent, and it's much worse for racial minorities. 29% of black families and 17% of Hispanic renters are behind as well. Charlie Herrick, a senior attorney at the National Consumer Law Center, told Heather Long that the tidal wave is coming. And it's going to be really, really, really horrible for a lot of people. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, December 8th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.